You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Peace and blessings to all our listeners. Welcome to the Voice of Islam. It's, ben- it's Sunday, the twenty-fifth of September, twenty twenty-two. The time now is ten o six. Welcome to the Weekend World Show. Das and Amdi listening on to Voice of Islam on Dab Radio on mobile and online 24 hours a day. Broadcasting live from the Beth of Fatou Mosque in Morden, the Weekend World Show is a current affair show with the week's news, views and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective, promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports and topics of faith and enlightenment. A message of Islam for the West. Join us and share us with your views or stories by phoning 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. The views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. And joining me as usual is uh, Waleed Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum, Waleed. Wa alaikum. The chill in the air is Mm -hmm. here, but the sun Mm -hmm. is still out, so winter is on its way. Yep. Yep. Uh, Gone are the days of... uh, Rising temperatures and uh, T-shirts and shorts. Yes, <laughs> but the rising temperatures hasn't uh, left the human <laughs> no, mindset. No, no, no. no. And there's a lot of hot tempers going around. <laughs> yes. And in that regard, the French poet writer and thinker... I don't wear shorts, by the way. Oh, right. <laughs> no, yeah, no, do I do. <laughs> the French poet writer and thinker, Guy de Maupassant, mm. stated, Patriotism is a kind of religion. It's an egg from which, which wars are hatched. Now, we see patriotism uh, to one's uh, nation or religion, which can be very positive to unite people of like-minded views, but it can, as Guy de Maupassant states, be the cause of disunity and hatred. We only have to see what happened in Leicester the last couple of weeks, something that had been brewing for several months, it appears. And the neutral media is reporting that the imported Hindu ideology seems to be the root cause. Patriotism. It's, it's a good thing, but uh, we've seen it in many facets, have we not? In football matches, in cricket matches, where yes, patriotism yes, take, goes too far. But no, but I, I wouldn't uh, relate it to uh, what happened uh, in Leicester. Yeah. I wouldn't equate the two. I mean, that was that was contrary to patriotism. I mean, if you are British, yes. if you're living in a, in a multicultural uh, society, society and community. And Leicester was re- as regarded as the m- yes. one of the most uh, integrated cultural... So in fact, Hazur Erkdas, yes. when he visited Leicester's opening mosque, he pointed that out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it goes contrary to that uh, yeah, thinking. That spirit, yes. Yeah. It's, it's wrong. It's, uh, so it, what happened in Leicester is anything mm. but patriotic. Um, so, uh, but anything taken to extreme yes. is, is something that needs to be, uh, you know, needs to be uh, uh, drawn back from. Yeah. Um, so, so guide to my person is not quite right. Uh, patriotism in true spirit is one mm. that unites people because it makes you proud of what you are. Mm. And hence you export that to others as well in your views and mm. the way you think mm. and the way you integrate. What he's talking about is the extreme version is what yeah. you're referring to. And sometimes this kind of thing, just like religion, mm. can be misused. Ah, and that's the problem. That's the problem. Okay, when patriotism, you yeah. you you portray patriotism uh, in such a way mm. and uh, as something that is supporting uh, what is illegal yes. and wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we'll like be invading talk- other countries, <laughs> <when before>. <laughs> <laughs> seeking seeking WMDs that don't, we know don't yeah, exist. We don't exist. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then 
calling out on Russia yes. of not doing of, of what they're doing, having done it themselves. Mm. Uh, okay, we'll, we'll be discussing a lot more, and maybe that topic might come up with our mm. first guest. With that in mind, really, what do you have on the show today? Well, we'll be joined by the very intellectual and highly educated Dr. Afzal Ashraf, an expert on counter-terrorism and lecturer at Loughborough University to discuss some of the key stories of the week. Uh, this will be followed by the Faith in Focus with the continued look at the life of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And then after the 11 o'clock news? Well, uh, well, continuing what we were talking about uh, uh, with the unrest in Leicester, mm. we were joined by Saf, who will give us his assessment of what has happened to a community which has been a model of multiculturalism, but something has triggered unrest, which uh, many media reporting the influx of foreign ideology behind this. Uh, we will also be joined by Leicester resident uh, belonging to the Hindu community with his views on what's going wrong. Uh, Arun Gohil uh, belongs to the Satya Sai organization, Satya Sai, uh, who devote their efforts in charity and works uh, in, in works relating to charity and promoting peace. Indeed, the, the, the positive side of what people yeah. do. Uh, what about sports today? Well, unfortunately, no premiership this weekend. Uh, so, <laughs> we have withdrawal symptoms there. Uh, we'll be discussing the England cricket tour of Pakistan with Tariq Mir from Pakistan and Shahid Khan, and also about the relegation of the English football team in the uh, Nations League with another disappointing loss. Yes, they lost 1 0 to it, and we'll be discussing mm. that as well. That's great, really. Inshallah, an interesting show in store for all our listeners. Uh, anyone eager to comment or share their views can do so by phoning 0208-687-787 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Voice of Islam on DAB Radio, mobile or live stream on voiceofislam.co.uk forward slash live. This is the Weekend World Show with Asan Ahmadi. The views on the show are those of those individuals and guests. Right, we're coming to the first segment of our show, really, which mm-hmm. is uh, behind, uh, which is a uh, news review. Uh, so uh, let's start, kick off with the news review. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views, and reviews. Right, Walid, uh, the yep. first news item, uh, as reported by, uh, I believe it was uh, uh, New York Times, I think, Le- uh, no, Al Jazeera, uh, Lavrov slams West for Russiaphobia. What did they say? Well, um, in a UN uh, General Assembly speech, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has criticized Western nations for their grotesque fear of Russia, telling the United Nations that such states were seeking to destroy his country. Lavrov uh, has said at the UNGA that uh, Moscow had no choice but to take military action in Ukraine. Yes, and earlier uh, in that uh, United Nations address, Liz Truss, the new prime minister, addressed the UN, and the New York Times reported that she signaled that she would continue Mr. Johnson's policy of offering strong support for the country and his president, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, we will not rest until Ukraine prevails, she said. Uh, let's have a quick uh, listen to what Liz Truss said. The Ukrainians aren't just defending their own country. They're defending our values and the security of the whole world. That's why we must act. That's why the UK will, set, will spend 3% of GDP on defence by 2030, maintaining our position as the leading security actor in Europe. And that's why, at this crucial moment in the conflict, I pledge that we will sustain or increase our military support to Ukraine. 
Yes, joining us this morning from sunny Bradford, after of all places, is Dr. Afzal Ashraf. Dr. Afzal or Dr. Ashraf has broad experience of international relations and security issues, both as a practitioner and as an academic. This includes service as a senior officer in the UK Armed Forces in operations ranging from deterrence support in the Cold War and strategic aspects of conflict in Iraq and Afghanistan. He's also lecturing at Loughborough University in security and terrorism. Assalamu alaikum and welcome, Dr. Afzal. Oh, alaikum salam. Uh, Again. Yes, no, thank you very much for joining us, uh, all, albeit from Bradford this time. Uh, I won't ask why, but uh, let's start with our uh, uh, discussions, first of all, on this Ukrainian issue. The war in Ukraine has been a disaster for countries around the world, with Lavrov stating that they were left with no choice, as we read from the article. Uh, has the West reneged on the promise not to expand NATO, and is Putin and Co. Uh, right in what they're doing? Well, the answer is yes and no. Um, <laughs> uh, arguably, uh, mm. the, 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 the West did promise uh, the Russians that they would not expand um, just shortly after the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. But that um, was never uh, a promise which was um, incorporated in any formal agreement. Mm. And that's the, the defense of the, 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 the uh, if you like, NATO. And NATO's argument is that it's a defensive alliance and that people are choosing to join it. Um, But, of course, the Russians could legitimately ask, what is it defending against? Um, And why is it expanding um, eastward uh, if it uh, isn't uh, aggressive? Um, So what we have here is um, typical political games being played. Mm. Um, the, there is no um, doubt for students of, um, of international relations and you know, people who study international relations and security that um, NATO has become an arm of American hegemony and uh, nations decide to join it uh, because uh, they, in some cases, genuinely fear uh, um, uh, alternative nations such as Russia, uh, and and there are reasons for that. Uh, Georgia, for example, has been very keen to join NATO because um, the, the the Russians have um, in, encroached on their territory in the past and 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 other territories. Um, and uh, there are other nations who feel that um, joining NATO uh, brings them uh, greater prosperity and uh, political strength uh, because uh, to them it's part and parcel of um, joining other alliances such as the EU uh, brings them into what is commonly known as the Western orbit of nations. And what we're seeing here is... Um, basically the world reverting to a a bipolar situation, the situation we had during the Cold War, you know, where the world was broken down into the um, Western and Eastern camps. Um, And uh, to, to, if you like, make that Eastern camp a little bit um, less formidable, um, the Americans, um, pulled off a, a, an incredibly um, a, a audacious move by saying 
China from uh, Russia, uh, and and, uh, under Nixon bought in China from the cold. And the consequences of that has been that China has emerged as an economic power and Mm. is now threatening the U.S. So you've got um, a very loose alliance. Uh, with the Russians, the Chinese, the um, uh, Iranians, and others, yes. who are sort of, um, uh, as, you know, fragmented, but on the other side of the fence from the Western world. So we have a very complicated and difficult situation. And the, you know, Lavrov is is right to a degree in that, um, uh, as a consequence of the um, of the. Uh, narratives that have mm. been put out by the uh, the West, uh, there is a um, there is a, a very strong anti-Russian bias, particularly in the Western world, uh, in Europe certainly. Yeah. Played 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 out in our media, in particular, certainly. I think Waleed, my co-host here, is going to ask you a question. Uh, yes. Dr. Um, you was mentioned. I mean, are you saying there, therefore, that those countries that are joining NATO see it as a stepping stone to uh, have the same kind of uh, economic benefits as uh, Western nations have, and that's that's what lures them uh, to that camp. Um, so yes, there are um, uh, uh, e- economic benefits in the, in the in the sense that um, uh, you, you know the NATO membership is often uh, either a prerequisite or uh, follows closely EU membership. So you know the, the EU obviously is an economic um, alliance. There's also um, uh, indirect benefits in that um, uh, by being members of NATO forces, they um, have uh, preferential access to um, defense equipment, uh, whether that's uh, you know, manufactured by the United States or um, uh, other European countries such as the UK, France, and so on. Um, you know, getting uh, decent defense equipment uh, is, is difficult. Um, getting it, uh, you know, having access to advanced defense equipment can be very difficult. Um, and also what it does is it um, uh, reduces uh, to a large degree uh, defense spending because you know that um, you will fall under the umbrella of the NATO security. Uh, so what, what that means is that um, should uh, there be an attack uh, from a neighboring country, um, you know, there's the other 20-something members of the NATO alliance who will come to your aid. So there are, you know, indirect uh, financial benefits. I hope that sort of sums it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you're talking about aid from the rest of NATO. I mean, Russia is struggling, it appears, from the reports that we're seeing, and Putin seems to be putting in desperate measures and Ukraine is resist, resist, uh, resisting extremely well, thanks to Western military support, as you said, uh, the rest are supporting it. Has Russia made a major error here? Should they have uh, tried to negotiate and go further, or should the West have tried to negotiate further? Because everyone's suffering. Yeah, um, I think that, uh, um, yes, I think there's a, uh, uh, obviously, uh, the Russian um, decision to invade uh, was not a wise one because of a number of reasons and also because um, uh, it hasn't really worked out. But I, I would caution against the 
the sort of newspaper reports uh, and analysis you've pointed to. Mm. Um, not that um, uh, I, I don't believe it's right, um, but any, um, if you like, um, in study of warfare in recent years or even in the past shows that warfare is a very strange thing. It doesn't necessarily um, follow a linear track. Uh, and uh, very often, um, in fact, more so than not, uh, wars take strange turns and twists. Uh, so the, um, being won by a particular party ends up being lost by them. And indeed, um, uh, you know, the, the conventional measures of success really don't apply. And I think we've seen that in our lifetime with um, what we've seen in Iraq and in Afghanistan, you know, the world's greatest uh, superpower um, ever in history mm. has failed to, to win. And the other point I think that you, you touched on was it, the sort of economic aspects. And again, I think there is a major flaw, strategic flaw in analysis. Um, there's a lot of uh, Western commentators quite rightly saying that um, you know Russia is suffering economically, and um, they're quite rightly pointing to the fact that um, Western uh, economic might out you know eclipses um, outperforms yeah. almost every measure what Russia has. I mean Russia's economy is minuscule compared to Western economies, but. That, I don't think, is the measure of success or failure. Um, the measure of success or failure isn't the capacity to wage war, either in the physical or economic domain. It is the capacity of people to absorb the pain. Mm -hmm. And that uh, fundamental issue, as far as I can tell, is not being understood or recognized by most strategists. Right. And that explains why... Um, the enormous capacity of the West, mm -hmm. uh, both militarily and economically, has failed to deliver success on the battlefield uh, or in any political domain. So, so yeah. I think those, that's my um, yeah, yeah. about uh, assessment, mm. um, uh, and I think it's important that uh, particularly a, 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 a radio station like yours. Uh, opens people's minds up to new ways of thinking um, uh, around these issues. Yeah, I think that's what we try to do, is that rather than just following the normal narrative that we get through the media, we try to present an alternative view as well, not necessarily agreeing with it, but certainly to let people know what those views are. And thank you very much for that very in-depth analysis and uh, uh, very detailed at, at, at that and wish we could discuss more but we, we time is always short on our radio so another item of news maybe we can <laughs> ask for your assistance in, a, uh, in your analysis uh, the Guardian is reporting that the red wall seats are being put at risk by the Cavalier tax cuts uh, tax cuts Liz Truss warned Liz Truss is being warned that she risks abandoning the winning of coalition of voters in the red wall she pursues as she pursues a cavalier tax cuts and revelation that her giveaway package disproportionately benefits more traditional conservative heartlands. Households in London and southeast England will gain three times as much as those in the north from tax cuts next year, according to a Resolution Foundation analysis. Well, what else do they say? 
Uh, well, they said that, uh, meanwhile, middle-income Britain stands to lose most from the overall impact of all tax and benefit policies announced over, this par- over the Parliament. The poorest fifth of uh, households gain £90 on average, with the middle fifth uh, losing £780, and only the top 5% gaining significantly, some 2520 uh, by 2024, 2.3 million people could be living in absolute poverty, according, including 700,000 children. Okay. Uh, looking at that report, apart from, uh, I think, the Telegraph who thinks that the budget was extremely... The Daily good. Mail. Oh, and at the Daily last, <laughs> he said, at last we've got a, a Tory budget or something like right, that. Right, okay. Yes. All yeah. the rest of the media is very is, is agreeing that this this could be very disastrous for the poor and the working class. Uh, uh, Dr. Ashraf, uh, Britain working uh, class is undergoing extreme hardships where many are relying on food banks, not just unemployed, but even full-time employees, with many deciding whether to heat the houses or to eat a full meal. Is this budget a stab in the back for the working class? Well, I think, as you've described, it might be seen as such. Um, uh, but it, you know, the, as far as I can tell, the government's uh, uh, justification is that uh, this is a growth budget which would grow the economy which would then um, lead to uh, better conditions for the working classes as they will for others now um, the point i would make is um, uh, that's a great hypothesis Uh, what is the evidence to back that up um, I'm not an economist, nor am I a party political analyst. So my my views are uh, of necessity somewhat uh, um, ill-informed. But uh, as a as a as a if you like a lay person, um, I'm finding it difficult to understand how, in the relatively short and medium term, uh, by giving something in upwards of fifty thousand pounds more money to the uh, you know millionaires mm. uh, we are going to grow the economy um, the the very simple economics in my mind suggests that the extra money um, in those uh, millionaires pockets will probably help to fund uh, their private jets or their yachts but it won't um, deliver any benefit on the high street where most ordinary people um, uh, shop and, 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 and the businesses that uh, they either um, build mm. or take advantage of. Um, there is this um, assumption that um, those, that £50,000 will be spent um, in growth. Ooh, we, yeah. that, that, that there is no, if you like, data, certainly modern data. I mean, in the past it may well have happened, but there is no modern data to suggest uh, lead to a sudden growth in, in, in economics. So I think there is a problem here. Now, um, much more significantly, I think, you know, you started off the, the impact of this budget on the party politics uh, of this country, the red wall seats, as you described. Mm. And here I would, uh, again, um, uh, add a little bit of uh, caution and uh, alternative, if you like, perception. Um, That uh, analysis assumes that everything else remains unchanged and and people will say, right, okay, we'll give up 
um, Tories uh, in the red wall seat, and we will look for an alternative government through the Labour and or Liberals maybe. But the, if you go back to, um, and I very recently read um, uh, articles which were in uh, Foreign Affairs magazine in the 1930s, 20s and 30s, written by German analysts who, who talked about how economics had a major impact on the politics of the country and how extremism came into what was at the time one of the most advanced philosophically, politically, scientifically countries in the world. Um, and they were predicting the, the, uh, to a very significant degree, not entirely, but to a very significant degree that their country was about to um, uh, enter a period of political darkness. But of course, we now know what happened. And so what I think, if the uh, forecasts uh, or, or the analysis is correct, that this is a budget that's going to hit people very hard, mm. then we shouldn't assume that the um, reaction will be the same as in cases where the, the, you know, there are only very slight budgetary, mm. if you like, mm. pressures. I mean, and so I think you know that's something I would I, I would just uh, add to your uh, uh, thinking on. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the, just one last point on this one, uh, Doctor. That we we're seeing already in Europe that the far right is utilizing this situation of immigration, poverty, h- hardship. Uh, where they're gaining popularity. Look at France, uh, Le Pen's party re- nearly getting it then, and it's feared that Italy will. Uh, will win uh, this weekend uh, with a far-right party, possibly. Absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, those, what you've just added, are the sort of early warning signs. And those signs existed in the 1920s and 30s when when the analysts that I've mentioned were talking uh, about this. So we have uh, precisely the the situation emerging and um, what we should uh, concern ourselves with is not just the obvious economic impact on the people that you've highlighted, Mm. that how it might destroy the political system, which, of course, could lead to far worse consequences for an even larger number of people for an even longer period of time. Um, Nobody's willing to confront the fragility of the Western democratic system. Uh, And that is a great uh, uh, worry because um, it it is, with all its weaknesses, the best system we have. And if that system collapses, there is very little to prevent uh, a political uh, breakdown in Europe and in many parts of the world. So I think that is something that behoves responsible politicians and statesmen to look at and again, I'm afraid, just like the economy, and even worse than the economy, we have a deficit of responsible statesmen mm. in this country, and it's an increasing deficit. As always, an in-depth analysis which ponders uh, or leaves room for people to ponder over, to think about what goes on with policy and, this, and what it has. So, Dr. Shah, I know you've got a very important appointment uh, following this interview, so I won't keep you from that. And thank you very much for sharing your views with us again this morning.
it's a pleasure. Right. That was Dr. Afzal, from Loughborough University Analysis. One of the things, I mean, as you mentioned from the Daily Mail and the Telegraph, highlighting what a great budget it was. The Tory policy has always been uh, give to the rich and the wealth will filter down to the poor. I left, I, left a, I read a lovely tweet the other day. Yes, I know the one you talked you know, about. <laughs> so yes. right uh, please, let, yeah, let's please. share it with our listeners. It is important. Yeah, yes. it is. He said that uh, I saw a, uh, a man begging on the streets and I did the right thing. I went past him, went to the nearest rich area posted a £10 note in the biggest house I could see, knowing that that £10 will slowly filter down to that <laughs> beggar that I walked through past. I think that sums it up quite well. Absolutely, yes. That's that's Tory politics at the moment, yeah. Indeed. Yes. Okay. Um, but it's worrying because uh, it's our future, isn't it? It and is, uh, absolutely. Uh, and very important because mm. uh, every one of us mm. will be facing some tough decisions this this mm. winter mm. and for a few years to yeah. come, I would have thought. Because unfortunately, n- neither you nor me are in that top 5%. Not at all. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think we will either. But... but his wealth is all. Uh, his wealth is all that we judge ourselves mm. by. You know, there's a lot of other. Oh, that's a very deep point. It yeah. is. It yes, is. Yeah, well, a, a topic for the future. Yes, that's what we're here for. That, yes, exactly. To right. Stir, to stir. Yes. <laughs> As Dr. Ashraf pointed out. Yeah. Uh, right. Let's go on to our faith in focus, Philippe. Uh, we've mm. been covering the Holy Prophet's life, and coming to the last few years, basically, mm. we got we got we travelled a journey here. Oh yes. Right. Thanks to you, by mm. the way, for well, for the immense for research. The <laughs> but there is one personal event of some significance that mm. took during this last few years of the Holy Prophet. Can you enlighten us a little bit of of what that was? Well, there were a number of events during the uh, last few years. As you mentioned, there's one or two that are quite personal. Um, the one um, I picked up on was the birth of his uh, of his uh, son Ibrahim. Uh, and the background of this lies in the letters of the Holy Prophet, uh, the letters he sent to various leaders, uh, kings, governors around the uh, around the world at that time, uh, inviting them to Islam. And we discussed this at length last time when we did the um, letters to various uh, leaders. But one of these letters, we, we didn't cover this, uh, was sent to the Roman governor of uh, Egypt, referred to as the Mukakis of Egypt. And the Holy Prophet selected, and he, the Holy Prophet was very, very astute, as you would expect him to be, in selecting the right person uh, for uh, delivering uh, his letters uh, or delivering his messages. And in this case, he uh, selected Hatib bin uh, Abi Bulta. Uh, and uh, this uh, companion uh, went to Egypt, got an audience with the governor eventually in Alexandria. And the letter read, in the name of Allah, the gracious, the most merciful, from Muhammad, the servant and messenger of Allah, to Mokakis, the uh, ruler of the Copts, blessed are those who follow guidance. I call you to Islam. Embrace Islam that you may find peace. Accept Islam and Allah will reward you twofold. If you reject Allah's word, then on you will bear the responsibility of the Copts as well. And then he, the letter goes on to state, O people of the book, let us agree on one matter which is the same for you and us, namely, that we worship Allah 
and that we associate no partner with him and that some of us take not others for lords besides Allah, then if uh, they turn away, say to them, bear ye witness that we have submitted wholly to Allah. So that's the text of the letter. Uh, it is a text that is reported in Hadith and what is uh, quite surprising about this uh, is that this letter was discovered in the 19th century um, or should I say rediscovered in the 19th century by some uh, French explorers and uh, the original letter was found and it uh, is exactly as was recorded uh, in the books of these. just shows uh, how accurate those particular compilations have been. Anyway, so that's the letter mm. and the governor on hearing uh, these words at first um well, uh, try to trivialize them. Uh, he, he teasingly asked that if this uh, prophet that is mentioned, so he's asking Hatib, the the messenger, he's saying that if this mess, this, this uh, uh, prophet uh, that you have accepted is true, then why did he not simply pray for me to become uh, a Muslim, you know, become subordinate to him? And Hasid was very astute himself, so he was a loyal companion, the Holy Prophet, have found and fought in Ad Badr. Uh, and as I mentioned before, the Holy Prophet was very wise to have chosen him for the task. task. And um, he did not uh, like this attitude of the government, that of you know trivializing or mocking uh, what uh, had been read to him of the letter of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Right. So no doubt in, in diplomatic terms, uh, he asked him to take the letter seriously and he said that bearing, you know, they were in Egypt, he said that there arose in this very country a person who thought he was the lord and ruler of the world, but God seized him in such a manner that he became an example for all subsequent generations. And he was talking about the Pharaoh, of course, and the governor being a Christian was mm. well aware of this. So this was, a uh, suppose, uh, that is... Um, is a warning to to uh, to the governor in a polite way to behave uh, and to take the letters uh, seriously, and this um, response indeed did uh, bring uh, the governor down to earth and uh, uh, get him to treat the letter as seriously as uh, it should be. So, what was the response of the governor having? being advised to consider his position. Well, he did just that. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he was uh, learned himself. Uh, he didn't accept the Holy Prophet, mm. but certainly felt it necessary to respect him. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll cover why he didn't uh, in a minute. But uh, what he did was he respected him. He respected the letter. Uh, he uh, asked for an ivory box to be brought and placed the letter of the Holy Prophet in it, sealed it, uh, and then he asked for a scribe who to write a letter back, to write a response in Arabic. And the letter read, I don't think this is uh, um, still in existence, but anyway, the, the letter read, In the name of Allah, most gracious, ever merciful, to Muhammad bin Abdullah from Okakis, chief of the Copts. So clearly he's not referring to the Holy Prophet as messenger of Allah. So clearly an indication that he's not accepting him. Uh, but he is uh, treating him with respect. He says, Peace be upon you. I have read your letter and have understood its contents and that to which you have called me. I am aware that a prophet is yet to arise, but I am of the opinion that he will appear in Syria. I have done uh, honor to your envoy 
and I am sending you with him two damsels of high status among the Copts and raiment and a mule for you to ride upon. Peace be upon you. So, uh, as the letter, um, so he's treating you with respect. The letter is accompanied with a host of gifts. Oh. It includes, according to some accounts, four kilograms of gold. Uh, rich garments, as mentioned in the letter, a beautiful donkey. The donkey was called Dudul. Dudul, uh, which uh, the Holy Prophet used to ride. And then two maidens, uh, Maria and Sirin. The Holy Prophet took one for himself, and Sirin was assigned to Hassan bin Sabit. Uh, and it was out, out of this union with Maria the Copt mm. that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was blessed with a son during the last uh, few years of his life. Uh, the Holy Prophet, as would be expected, was overjoyed with his birth, and he named him Ibrahim after the patriarch common to both Muslim and Christians. This uh, gift of a maid, we have to understand the culture of the time because mm. some people can misinterpret what this is, and the Holy Prophet taking one of the maids as a wife for himself. Mm. This was a culture of the time, wasn't it? Yes. And, uh, and not just of the Holy Prophet and the Arabs, but mm. the Christian kings would have done it, hence why he sent a gift. Mm. Uh, it was a way of building relationships and integrating between two communities. Yes, yes. And it was something that was practiced um, in uh, biblical history as well. You yes. had uh, uh, King David and King Solomon uh, having hundreds and hundreds of such uh, such. Uh, mm. Such relations, yeah. yes, and and it was there to promote unities between different mm. people and different yes. tribes and yeah. different faiths. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, the son did not survive very long, did he? No, uh, and he's often remembered, uh, mm. uh, certainly within Islam. Yeah, um, yes. So um, the son uh, lost, well, survived uh, for several months, in fact, uh, and as he grew, the Holy Prophet visited him regularly. Uh, and uh, his mother and he had an had an accommodation arranged around three miles from Medina. Uh, it's Alawali is uh, what's referred to uh, in the history books. Uh, but when the young Ibrahim was about 15 months old, mm. maybe, maybe a year and a half, he fell ill. It's likely to have been some kind of infection he had caught. And the Holy Prophet became very concerned about this condition. It is said that as his uh, breathing increasingly became difficult at the end, the Holy Prophet uh, cradled him in his arms and wept. And on this, one of the companions asked, do you cry too? They were surprised to see him weeping. And this shows, and this indicates, and some commentators have mentioned this, that the Holy Prophet was not w one who would weep publicly often. Uh, it was very private in his grief. Although we can appoint when you look through history and through his life, certain instances when he did cry in public, like when praying over his mother's grave or on the remains of his deceased uncle Hamza. But anyway, when uh, um, Ibrahim uh, breathed his last, the Holy Prophet said, uh, Oh Ibrahim, were the truth not certain that the last of us will join the first, we would have mourned even more than we do now. And then he uttered those, those very memorable words. He says, when he, the Ibrahim did pass away, he says, the eye sheds tears and the heart grieves, yet we see nothing that would offend our Lord. Ibrahim, we grieve solely over thy parting. To him we belong and to him we shall return. And this is um, important uh, because Ibrahim was dear to him. 
yet uh, his love for Allah was dearer. If Allah had deemed it necessary for this parting, the Holy Prophet was submissive to that will. And this demonstrates uh, how we, uh, how he was the ultimate Muslim, totally resigned mm-hmm. to the will of God no matter what. And is an example of how we also should uh, face times of adversity and times of grief ourselves in our lives. And despite his status, the Holy Prophet went through many trials and bore them with great patience and fortitude. He was blessed as far as we know with up to four sons um, and four daughters, all with the exception of Fatima, uh, died during his lifetime. Mm. Uh, And um, it's one thing to mourn the um, passing away of a parent, but to, to, to mourn the passing of a way of a way of your own children uh, is something of a different is of a different level, isn't it? And this is something that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, bore with great patience and fortitude. Indeed, I mean, a, a childbirth uh, at inception, very at the right at the beginning, where you haven't developed a relationship with a child, is probably a bit easier to comprehend. Mm. Then one here, you know, the Abraham was 15 to 18 months. Yes. So relationship would have developed yes, by then. probably started to talk. Uh, exactly, around. and, and yeah. the habits and the actions mm. that, and, mm. and, and uh, you know, what the little child does becomes very endearing, doesn't mm. it? And then to lose all that at a, yes. for a ch- at a child, mm. I think it's the hardest one yes, to bear. Very, so, and, very and, and the Holy Prophet copes very mm. well. Uh, there was an eclipse at the time. Was that seen to be like an omen at the time or something? Well, I mean, can you expand mm, on that so a little bit, what this eclipse was? It's, that's an interesting point. Uh, it's, yes, there was an eclipse of the sun. And yes, some companions did start to wonder whether this was due to an expression of heavenly sadness uh, on the loss of uh, the Holy Prophet or a tribute uh, to the death of the Holy Prophet's son. But the Holy Prophet was not having any of it. He rejected this, explaining that these kind of things are natural phenomena and do not have anything to do with the death of a person. Uh, Montgomery Watt, uh, not a Muslim, mm. he's commented on this, uh, and this is I found this quote in uh, the uh, biography of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, penned by Sir Jodhi Zafrullah Khan. He's, he writes, Montgomery writes, uh, a vulgar imposter would have accepted and confirmed this delusion, but Muhammad rejected the idea. The sun and the moon he taught them are amongst the signs appointed by law, by the Lord. They are not eclipsed on the death of anyone. Whenever you see an eclipse, then betake yourselves to prayer until it passes away. So he did, was not one who would claim something mm. that um, would be uh, more dramatic uh, uh, because it was not something that came from God. Yeah, uh, and then we come to the burial of Hazrat Ibrahim, yeah. and that is again a very important aspect, mm. uh, something to reflect on uh, for the future. Yeah, uh, the Holy Prophet himself, yeah, uh, put himself with the body of the young infant in the grave, and here he said, and that for us this is very significant, for all Muslims is very significant, he said that had Ibrahim lived, he would have been uh, a prophet. Now, why that is very significant is that this is happening uh, six months before the Holy Prophet passes away, very late in his life, um, around, it's in fact January 632, and he passes away in June 632. And uh, uh, 
the verse uh, that uh, is quite significant, uh, relevant to this, is one that was revealed um, certainly two years before. Some people say five years before, and it is about in Surah Azab, which says Muhammad is not the founder, father of any of your men, but he is the seal of the prophets. Now, if the yeah, seal, that's chapter the, thirty-three, verse forty-one, I believe, or forty-two. Forty-two, yeah. very 42. well remembered. Well, <laughs> right, <laughs> it's a word seal had meant a total end of all types of prophethood. Mm-hmm. How could the Holy Prophet have said this? That if Abraham had lived, he uh, would have been a prophet. Uh, and just to reiterate, that verse was revealed before the yes, death of Hazrat Ibrahim. Mo- most definitely. Right. Okay, there's yeah, category, there's no uh, dispute about dispute this. About that. Right? Okay. The, uh, that o- is very important. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the only dispute is when. Mm. When was it revealed before? Was it two years before or mm. was it more five years before? Mm. So there's very, uh, okay. various okay. estimates. Okay. But it was definitely before. before. So... It shows that the Holy Prophet, uh, who understood the meaning of Khatam and Nabiyan the best mm. and better than anyone else, did not believe that Khatam means an end to all prophets, but was of the few that uh, prophet would, could continue after him, albeit, albeit under his dispensi- dispensation. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, something that is very, very relevant and something that all Muslims should really ponder upon. Right. And, and the... the, the the question that arises, the, the the words that the Holy Prophet used, because the those who don't accept the promised Messiah claim that this verse proves that uh, had he uh, ha- had prophets been able to come, the Holy Prophet would have not mm. uttered these words. No. Okay, but as you said, the verse was revealed before about Khatam and the being. Then, as Ibrahim dies five years later. He's buried, and the Holy Prophet says, had he lived, he would have been a prophet, mm. right? Now, the question is that surely he would have said, had he lived, even then he will not be a prophet. Yes. If that was the, if that was the meaning, <coughs> that yes. there will be no prophets after yes. him. So when yes. you say that the Holy Prophet understood the, mm. the verse, Khatam mm. and being better than mm. anyone, mm. this wording actually mm. proves that mm. point. And neither did he say that uh, he could not have lived because he would have been a prophet, right. because it would contradict uh, the Khatmian. Exactly. He didn't say anything like no. that either. So those uh, Muslims who say that that's why he died, yeah. because he would have contradicted the verse in the Holy Quran, mm. they're also therefore, the, yeah. that argument is also repulsed. Exactly. In fact, they put a stain on the entity of God Almighty, mm. that uh, he says to the Holy Prophet, this is, the, this is what he says, and then the Holy Prophet says, well, had he lived, he would have been a prophet. Therefore, Allah decided to kill him, mm, to mm. have him dead, so that he would mm. not become a prophet. Yes. It, it just does not make sense. It doesn't make sense, and it is, uh, yes, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's a meaning that it cannot, can, it doesn't, doesn't uh, appeal to, yeah, to our intellect yeah, at all. Yeah, indeed. Uh, we can discuss that at a later stage, I'm mm. sure. We, it's yeah. something that we, we will need to mm. uh, because we'll come to other aspects later in our series. Yeah. Uh, discussing other matters, we were approaching the last year of the Holy Prophet. Uh, how is it that he performed only one Hajj? Because not many people know this, do they? Mm. They think that he went to Hajj almost every mm. year, but he only performed one. What was that? Why was that? Uh, well, the Holy Prophet uh, uh, conquered Makkah in 630. Mm-hmm. Um, so he died in 632. So you've got two years, possibly three or three years, uh, the six, including 630, uh, uh, when he could have done Hajj. But uh, he didn't in the year he conquered Makkah because he had to defend 
an attack from uh, the um, in the Battle of Hunan. So that was, uh, and there was a constant threat from the Taqif. These are the people of Taif who mm. were bitterly opposed to the Holy Prophet. So that's 6.30, so he, he could not have uh, performed Hajj then. The passage was not safe, right? The following year, 6.31, it's uh, the year when he had to march to Tabuk for, to defend, um, uh, de- defend is well defend attacks from the um, tribes that were sympathetic to to Rome. So he could not uh, he could not go to Hajj uh, in that year. Some scholars also say that Hajj only became compulsory in the last years of the Holy Prophet's life. It wasn't compulsory before. Mm-hmm. So it was during the last year of his life in March 1632 that the Holy Prophet therefore performed the Hajj. Um, he did send a delegation a year before when he himself was in Tabuk under Hazrat Abu Bakr to perform Hajj. But um, in 632, the year after he came himself uh, to Makkah and established by his own personal example the rites of Hajj as they should be practiced. In fact, the Holy Prophet said, uh, so as much he says, take the rites of Hajj from me. And the other point that became clear during this Hajj, the Hajj of 632, the one Hajj that he performed, is that the time of the passing away of the Holy Prophet was near. Uh, Jabir bin Abdullah, companion of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, relates that the Holy Prophet said, learn the rites of Hajj from me, I might not be able to perform Hajj again. And Surah Al-Nasr was revealed, Izajah Nasrullah al-Fat, was revealed during this Hajj. And this indicated the impending departure of the Holy Prophet from this earth. As Abu Bakr, it is reported, is said to have been greatly distressed on hearing these verses because for him, and he was right, it meant that the Holy Prophet was soon to depart from this earth. Also, that verse of the Holy Quran in chapter 5, verse 4, was also revealed during the Hajj, which says, This day I have perfected your religion. And Hazrat Umar, according to Ibn Kasir, Ibn Kasir is a renowned historian, Umar, according to Ibn Kasir, says that Hazrat Umar, on listening to those words, or that verse, wept on hearing this because he said, all perfection marks an end, and there is going to be an end, and that end is going to be symbolized by the uh, um, departing of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. So senior companions understood what these verses that were being revealed also meant. It is said that as far as the journey from uh, Medina to Makkah is concerned, it take, took 10 days to complete. So the Holy Prophet set off uh, for the Hajj from Medina. When he announced this, other people also wanted to join him. All his wi- wives certainly accompanied him, which was unusual. He would only take normally one wife mm-hmm. to, on any expedition. But every single wife accompanied him. And because uh, of um, the status of the Holy Prophet at that time, once he's a, he'd announced that he was going to Hajj, everybody wanted to come. Mm. Uh, he had marched uh, to Makkah with, at the head of 10,000 uh, men, two years before on its conquest. Mm. Now it is reported there were some hundred thousand, hundred thousand, yeah. ten times as many. Uh, and that's what the, the figures are that are quoted in uh, um, in the history books. The largest assembly ever put together at that time. Um, so this was uh, uh, how that that Hajj, Hajj took place. And almost ready to 
complete his mission, basically. Yes. yes. And uh, a, f- a farewell message, I would have thought, at that time. Uh, yes. Was that the occasion where the farewell message was given? No, very true, very right. Um, he gave, uh, there wasn't one, you know, this is why when you look uh, through uh, the records, you find more than vers- one version of it. And uh, the answer is there wasn't just one, one uh, farewell uh-huh. sermon. Mm. Uh, there was more than one, one address that was given. Uh, and the first was on the day of Arafah. I think it's on the 9th of uh, Zulhaj. Mm. And then there were two in the Valley of Mina. Uh, and the Valley of Mina is the one where he talks about, um, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, talked about uh, the equality of man. But in uh, the first of uh, these uh, addresses, uh, this one took place in Arafah. And this is... In fact, it is here that the verse, uh, this day I have perfected religion for you and completed my favor upon you, have been chosen and chosen uh, for you Islam as religion was uh, was actually revealed. And uh, this is significant because when we cover something next uh, time, this has become very significant as to where this verse was revealed. Is revealed in, in Makkah at Arafah and uh, uh, this is also substantiated by his Umar because when he became Khalifa, um, a, a Jewish a person who was a, of the Jewish faith came to him and he said that uh, there is a verse in your Quran which if we had its equivalent in our scriptures, we would have taken the day when it was revealed as a day of celebration, as a day of Eid. Mm. And uh, the Hazrat Umar asked, which verse are you talking mm. about? And he said, it's this one. This day I have perfected a religion for you mm. and completed my favor upon you and have chosen you, uh, for you Islam as a religion. And um, Hazrat Umar said, I know exactly when this, was re- when this verse was revealed. The Holy Prophet was standing on the plains of Arafah on the day oh. of Al-Hajj. Uh, and uh, Allah revealed this verse. So it's already a day of celebration for us. So... Uh, Remember that. I don't know mm. whether you can for two weeks, but uh, always, we will. You always do like a cliffhanger, <laughs> yes. don't you? Sometimes we remember why. Yes, because it it's it's at the root of the Shia uh, Shia Sunni divide. Yes, no Shia Sunni divide. <laughs> okay. So uh, th- that's very important. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll talk about uh, these other sermons mm. and also uh, this uh, an, another another sermon that uh, he delivered which uh, was relevant and which is used or misunderstood by by some muslims and leads to the uh, to the under- understanding or the misunderstanding that there was some kind of uh, succession attributed to uh, hazrat ali by right. the holy prophet peace be upon him and in in any legacy in any will that sort mm. of thing is sort of left you know mm. what happens after me yeah and people can misinterpret some of that as you put it and we look forward to uh, sharing those views with you and uh, getting more detailed information as you have been doing so so many yep. times you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed uh, welcome back uh, to our listeners uh, to, uh, we're now going to our next segment of the show which is behind the headlines just been called for Donald Trump. The decision taken to join the common market has been reversed. should call a general election. Weekend world. Questions to the Prime Minister. Behind the headlines. Right, we'll start off with the recitation of the Holy Quran. وَإِذَا قِيلَ لَهُمْ لَا تُفْسِدُوا فِي الْأَرْضِ قَالُوا إِنَّمَا نَحْنُ مُصْلِحُونَ 
ألا إنهم هم المفسدون ولكن لا يشعرون Allah says in the Holy Quran, chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, And when it is said to them, Create not disorder on the earth, they say, these are the troublemakers, they say we, only promote, we are only promoters of peace. Beware, it is surely they who create disorder, but they do not perceive it. Uh, well, it uh, hmm. People uh, are scared, lest uh, at sudden crossroads after violence ends 50 years of harmony as headlined by the independent. Uh, what else are they saying? They're saying that more than 500 uh, Hindu and Muslim men uh, clashed uh, with each other and with uh, police during two nights of violence. They're stretched across a swathe of uh, Leicester's East End. Cars were smashed, bottles and stones were thrown, and 20 arrests were made. Yes, at least 25 police officers were injured. So bad was the violence that patrols uh, had to be redirected from the Queen's funeral, the biggest policing operation ever undertaken in the UK, to help deal with it. Now Leicester finds itself blinking at a sudden reputational crossroads. Mm. After half a century in which its peaceful diversity has come to be acknowledged as a model of integration across the world, city leaders fear that one weekend of violence could have undone five decades of hard work. What on earth went wrong? How did no one see it coming? And can calm be brought back to a city still simmering with tension? Yeah, strong words by the independent there, and uh, quite fearful, in fact. Um, joining us this part of the show is Saf Amadi. Saf is an investment director at GWM and has been a youth leader, engaging the youth to play a positive role in their community. So uh, let's listen to uh, what the news reports uh, say. Uh, a recording of uh, the news report about the Leicester riots. On Saturday night, a Hindu march in Leicester led to clashes with Muslims. Bottles were thrown at police as they tried to stop the violence. After weeks of unrest, leaders from both sides came together to call for calm. We, the family of Leicester, stand in front of you, not only as Hindus and Muslims, but as brothers and sisters. We together call upon the inciters of hatred to leave our city alone. Leicester has no place for foreign extremist ideology that causes division. It's claims of a series of attacks by extremists that brought Muslim protesters out onto the streets on Sunday. Don't give them ammunition. They claim their community is being targeted by right-wing Hindu nationalists and say they've been reporting attacks since May. There's uh, an ideology that has been played out in the streets of Leicester that may be looked at a national scale, at international level. So we have seen in India at this moment in time uh, the treatment of minorities, including Christians, including Dalits, and including Muslims, which is now being transferred to the streets of Leicester. Those are the voices of Leicester. Uh, Asalaamu Alaikum, Saf. Always good to hear from you and uh, take on and take sorry and to hear your take on many of the important issues uh how are you well, sir well, well, yeah very very good Jazakallah. thank you very much and thank you very much for your time as per normal yes no thank you for joining us as always uh, we always look forward to your comments uh, very detailed and very thorough 
very measured as well. Um, Leicester has been a model of Britain's multicultural mix, uh, living in peace and positive integration. Uh, and uh, as, the end of, uh, as the Independent put it, what's gone wrong? What's brought on these uh, unrest in the communities which appear to be between Hindu and Muslim communities in Leicester? In fact, I was telling Waleed that uh, the opening of the Leicester Mosque for the Amdiya Muslim community, His Holiness, Hazamizah Masrur Ahmed, uh, may Allah be his helper, actually pointed mm. out that how integrated Leicester was and it was the most integrated yeah. community in, in the country. Uh, so what what do you think is going wrong here? And uh, this is not helpful to the image of Britain. No, it's it's funny you mentioned that. And I think you know, having visited Leicester a couple, you know, on on a, a couple of uh, occasions, I think that's the first striking thing that you always see about it. You know, you see it. It, it is it's a, it's a melting pot of all sorts of different races, classes, uh, different types of people. And um, I think it has been a model of uh, of almost uh, you know this kind of utopian sort of uh, style of uh, uh, mixture of races. Mm. Um, essentially, people have been saying, you know, that this all started from a cricket match, uh, you know, the India-Pakistan cricket match in Dubai in August. Um, I, I, I don't think that's the case. I think, firstly, number one, you, you said, you, you know, you mentioned Muslim and uh, Hindu. I think by all accounts and from everything I'm reading, many of, yes, whilst it has been predominantly a, um, you know, uh, uh, predominantly uh, religious religion has been the line that's sort of been set between the two. One has to have a look at um, essentially the politics of uh, of the subcontinent, um, especially I think the rise of the BJP in India has created probably a much more um, visceral atmosphere towards minority groups of which uh, the the, the uh, Muslim is, and I think much of what was actually brought into Leicester uh, was not. From Leicester, it was actually imported into Leicester from from the sounds of things that many of the people that were actually um, uh, I, I think the first demonstrations that took place by Hindu activists, or, or again I don't I'm not really very feel comfortable with using the word Hindu or Muslim in this context because I think it's more like Indian uh, you know journalists um, that were that were in that were in Leicester mm. to um, to demonstrate and. Um, I think very much started creating a uh, ripple of events. There, mm-hmm. there were some skirmishes during the uh, time of the actual cricket match, but again, you know, that I think was more. One, one could probably say, yes, a little bit of element of hooliganism. Uh, I don't think it was a particular, you know, Muslim versus Hindu. Uh, at that point, it has suddenly, unfortunately, there has been a torch fire which has suddenly made it that way, yeah. um, and it is unfortunate to say. I think that this was more into the town yeah. or into the city rather than uh, something that was uh, that already existed in place what they what they managed to do is unfortunately create disorder mm. uh, 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 and, and I was going to say that uh, from the voices from the people they they seem to be saying similar to what you're saying that it's not the cricket match that caused it because there were issues before this for several months yeah. uh, and maybe a bit yeah. longer. I remember when I was uh, teaching, uh, not teaching, sorry, when I was working at Kingston University, we had a Pakistan-India game 
Uh, and there was a bit of a scuffle between some of the students, Indian Muslims, uh, mm. Indi- Indians and Pakistanis. Uh, and that was a one-day thing and for a couple of hours or something. And it all went back and they were all friends after that. So a cricket match won't instigate all that. Uh, but this seems yeah. to be some sort of other issues. And as people are saying, it seems to be long-term. Now, media reports seem to implicate that there has been an import of foreign ideologies, which you've just hinted on, which is religiously mm. influenced over the past few years. And seems so. the media seems to be saying it's been happening, for, been building up. And it seems to be behind yeah. what, what these t- particular tensions are. Uh, and, as, as, and as many arrests have been taken place from people from outside Leicester as well, it means that people have been coming from outside. What are these ideologies and why are they causing the issues? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, we all know, I get, you know, there's reams and reams of paper about, you know, Islamism and you know, like the, the rise of that. That's, you know, that has its place. We, we I think we've talked into it to, to sort of the bare bones of that side of, mm. uh, of that side of things. One thing that's not really covered very clearly has this sort of, there's been rise of this sort of extreme um, uh, Hindu uh, and it's not again. It's more this kind of identity politics, uh, which has sort of arisen in India, especially since the rise of the BJP, who have been uh, one. One would say, you know, they have been very um, uh, incredibly visceral in their language. Incredibly, mm. sort of. Um, uh, uh, I it's very hard to say, but it, it, th- th- there's been a, this very big push, um, and especially, you know, you even see it on um, social media. Um, the kind of anti-Muslim rhetoric is not really coming from the same places. It's this very right-wing uh, angle, which is very much predominantly coming from uh, uh, from India um, and would, from certain sections of, of, of that side yeah. of uh, would the it be, world. Would it be fair to say that it is the political aspect of this which is being sort of being used, uh, of using religion? to, to yes. the political agenda rather than the religious aspect of it. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's again, actually, I mean, I was reading some of the, uh, you know, when sort of having a look at this, some of the RSS, which is the sort of the paramilitary organization mm. um, of, you know, like this hardline uh, uh, Hindu, Hindu Teva, uh, sort of uh, uh, movement. Yeah. Um, many of them, many of them actually class themselves as atheists uh, within it. So oh, right. this is not about religion as such. It's actually this is about the identity. You know, like being. Mm. You know, like what is your identity, um, and differentiating between the two. It, and that's normal. And you know, this is this is a kind of normal facet of um, right wing fascism. Uh, is that many of them will not have that link to to, uh, to the faith much of the time. They use the faith almost as a cover right. um, for the bigotry. Um, so in this case, I would say it's it's a similar thing. It's it's creating this kind of um, uh, a wider wider push, mm. I would say. And um, and I think as you know, you mentioned at the very beginning with the with the, with the verse from the Holy Quran. Um, this is this is. In in that it's really just there to sow disunity, and it's just you know like uh, to to create disorder um, when 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 there was order. I, I I have I have a lot of sympathies with the people of Leicester. I I don't believe that this is uh, something of their making. Mm. Um, uh, it has been something that's been brought in. Uh, Waleed's uh, sitting with me as well. Waleed, I mean uh, I I mean I've lived in Leicester. <laughs> I studied there, so I lived there too. Then it was honestly quite a multicultural. Uh, society, Hindus, mm. uh, Muslims, everyone. Just we, we got on with our lives. 
but at that time it was mostly the East African Asians predominantly there, but there were with the Muslim community less so. They were mostly from the Pakistan or the subcontinent, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Indians as well. Uh, so as well. Ugandanians, Ugandanians mostly, mm-hmm. and and some Muslims as well from uh, the subcontinent. Mm-hmm. The Muslim community mostly from the subcontinent. The Hindu community mostly from East Africa. Okay. Uh, and but everyone got on. Uh, if, mm. I, if I had any issues, it was because I was an MD rather than anything. <laughs> yeah. But even then, they were friendly. Okay. Not for, it worked go most friendly. Okay. Uh, but we, we had that. Um, so w- what's happening now in Leicester is contrary to what, what Leicester was about. Mm-hmm. And uh, Saf says that it's this imported ideology, which is a political angle rather than a religious one. Well, uh, it's not just political, it's extremist angle. I mean, uh, I I share what uh, Saf has said, that as far as reports are concerned, Mm -hmm. uh, what commentators are saying, it is the importing of uh, RSS uh, Mm -hmm. individuals. I mean, this is the organization that was against uh, an inclusive India. It was, which is, and which is also behind many of the mosques being demolished in India, yes. and the atrocities yes. being uh, yes. imposed on Muslims as well, and also responsible for the assassination of Mahatma Gandhi, ah, right. because he was for inclusive India, yes. or he yes. wanted inclusive India, uh, and uh, so RSS, uh, I mean, are well known for the extremist views, yeah. and they have been uh, very much propped up and very much supported mm. by the current regime in uh, in India. And that is, uh, I mean, the fact that we've turned a blind eye to this uh, and the world has turned a blind eye to it yeah. is, uh, is something that is, uh, um, the consequences of it is something that we, re- we, we are realizing in our own country where those kinds of individuals being um, supported yeah. by that kind of ideology mm. when they infiltrate into our communities are, are causing havoc. Sure. Uh, Seth, coming back to you, uh, what do you think mm. needs to be done now? Uh, damage has been done. Uh, communities yeah. seem uh, to be s- divided. Uh, I, I was listening mm. to some of the media on, uh, on Indian TV and highly divisive propaganda going on yeah. there, um, which is Absolutely. not going to help at all. And social, a, a lot of blame being put on social Excuse me. A lot of blame being put on social media as well. So, what needs to be done in in order to quell what is happening to Leicester? I think. I mean, already you've sort of seen from most of uh, you know the, the, the sort of leaders uh, of the area, you know, like whether it be from uh, the Muslim, the Hindu area, even you know, the mayor um, calling for calm. Uh, number one, I mean, there, there does need to be calm. In there, there needs to be open dialogue uh, between the different factions. I think there needs to be a move now, <clears throat> potentially, to have a look at those troublemakers, um, where they're coming from. For example, I think mo- most of the people that have been put in, uh, not actually Leicester residents, you know, most of those that have been arrested, mm. they say a high majority of them have actually come from Birmingham and surrounding, uh, surrounding towns, yeah. which again sort of shows that there, that there is a problem of, that, you know, people are using um, uh, this as, they're using Leicester as a kind of a flashpoint, you know, something that they can light the uh, torch paper on, um, on this. So yeah. that has to be called as much as possible. And I think they, they do need to firstly um, find out who the aggravators are. Mm-hmm. I think people need to be a little bit more honest about where the aggravation is coming from. Yeah. 
um, and making some sort of, you know, there needs to be a pointed um, uh, move to make sure that those people are not allowed into the city to create any more um, disorder. Um, and I think th there needs to be a dialogue between um, those those leaders uh, of the certain uh, of certain areas to to try and get their their communities to sort of yeah, fall th in. There uh, was a very good uh, statement which we played a little bit off uh, from uh, the United Front of the Hindu and Muslim Community Leaders. Yeah, um, yeah which yeah. was an excellent, uh, I thought, uh, an, uh, statement by by all of them, read out by yeah. Pradeep Gajar uh, from the Hindu Temple. Uh, um, and uh, that's the sort of thing that needs to be done. But uh, what is ve very clear is that it was the marches by the, these these uh, Hindu community or youth who went yeah. past mosques and uh, Muslim areas shouting Jai Shri or whatever. Uh, their slogan. Yeah, it's, it's mm. their, it's their yeah. slogan, which is fine. But you, if it was to antagonize, which is what it appears mm. to be, then you unfortunately mm. you get the reaction of some youth. And apparently, uh, where the flag was taken off uh, by, an, uh, by a Muslim individual, uh, I think Channel 4 reported that what they didn't show was that there were the Muslim youth, uh, there, there were Muslim uh, leaders who were trying to stop him from doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, right. obviously, it was right. but, but India was, India TV was showing the other way. Uh, so, uh, the, the youth need to be channeled, as you say. Now, during the time yeah. of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, uh, had many diverse communities existed. Uh, Christians, Jews, it believers is. in other faiths like the Sabians, which is mentioned in the Quran. How did, the, because uh, uh, the Holy Prophet also was confronted with aggression, etc., and yet he created a very calm society. How did he go about in doing that? How did he achieve that? And what lessons can we take? Mm. I, I mean, I think, again, you, you know, you read the countless hadith about his, um, his, his attitude towards um, people of different faiths, uh, different denominations, races. Um, and also uh, how he treated them. I mean, for example, there is a, 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 a very, you know, a, a very important hadith about um, during his lifetime there was a Muslim and a Jew who were involved in an argument. Mm. Uh, both claimed and counterclaimed that their relative, you know, that, that they had relative superiority um, and their respective over their respective uh, prophets. Mm. Um, and upon hearing that complaint, the Holy Prophet actually admonished um, against the Muslims, <laughs> and he said to him. You know, do not exalt me above Moses. Mm. Um, and he said that. And he said, despite the fact that the Holy Quran actually says that um, uh, that, that he holds a superior yeah. status, um, it, it was a high standard of decency that he he expected of um, of people within his own faith um, uh, to do so. You know, this this kind of tit for tat or in trying to sort of thing was not. You know, he he didn't. Um, uh, he, he, basically, he would not even allow for that sort of <laughs> torch paper to even be lit. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, he quelled it at the very beginning, and he—it was. You know, you, and you look at the verses of the Holy Quran. He lived and he abided by those. You know, the idea of disorder. Mm. Um, and um, one of the things, you know, a lot of the things, you know, uh, when the Holy Quran also speaks of, um, uh, you know, the 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 disbelievers, it's, it's less about the disbelievers, but it's more about those that create disorder in society. You know, there's actually more about That's who those that create disorder exactly. in society. Absolutely. Exactly, and this is the same. And then you know, you even look at the Charter of Freedom, which he granted to uh, the Saint Catherine's Monastery, mm. Mount Sinai. Um, you know, you look at the way that he, literally, he just basically said, "You are free to practice. There will be nothing. I will do nothing against yeah. you." You know, like there will, 
I have not, you know, even as long as you sort of live and we can live in harmony, yeah. nothing will, uh, and I, you know, I make a, it's a pledge. There was a clear instruction not to harm anyone of other faiths, you know, which was essential. Uh, I mean, that, that hadith you quoted is very pertinent, I think, in this regard. It, it gives that explanation mm. that you don't Absolutely. light fire with fire. You know, you, you try to quell it and you try to put it out. Mm. But it, and it, and well, it shows a sense of the that it's important to be sensitive and to uh, appreciate the sensibility of others. Mm. Um, and uh, that's why, I mean, even if something is true, you don't have to grow about it mm. and cause uh, cause a distress to another person. Yeah. Uh, and the fact uh, about accommodation and understanding was very much prevalent in the conduct of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. We also have that incident where uh, people of a different faith, Christians, when they came uh, and they wanted to worship, he allowed his um, his place, of, his own place of worship, That's the right. mosque, yes. to be used. So it shows tolerance, understanding, um, reaching out, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, and yes, and respect, and enhancing community cohesion. Mm. This is what it's all yes. about. This yes. is what Islam is all yeah. about. Yeah. Uh, would you then say, uh, Seth, that? Uh, the community leaders have somehow failed in, in instilling that into the community. I, I, I'll give you an example. I can't imagine any Ahmadi led, yeah. to be led and going on a protest march, one, to ignite hatred to another, number one, yep. and number two, to retaliate if someone had done it to them. Because yes. our yep. youth are instilled <laughs> through, the, through the Khalifa of the time through the teachings of Islam, through the teachings of the promised Messiah. But but in, in community, this is lacking. So would you say yeah, that absolutely. community I, leaders are, are sometimes lacking in, in that? Absolutely. And I 100% agree on that. Um, I think if you look at our community, <coughs> we've always been the first, um, you know, we've always been on the front line of creating that social cohesion. You know, go to sort of a lot of the events that took place on the death of, um, uh, I might see the Queen. You know, the, even little things like that. I mean, you know, when I say that, it's <clears throat> you look at what uh, what was done to ensure that you know we were we, we showed that we're part of this community. Many, I'm sure there's probably some Republicans within <laughs> within the within the um, fold, but we we you know we do our utmost to ensure that everyone's sensibilities and um, are taken into consideration, and we do our very utmost to do what we can uh, with, with the community. I think you're absolutely right. On this particular thing, I think there has been a failure in as much as, for example, the uh, protest that took place in the first place, it was well known that what, what that would do. You know, the, the, it was well known that that would aggravate um, a local community. They went and they protested in a, mm. uh, in a, in a, in a uh, predominantly um, Muslim area. Um, also then, for example, certain, um, certain mosques um, then calling upon you know like their youth to go and you know fight for your you know fight for your brothers and this and that it's essentially what was the intention what was going to happen what was expected to happen as a result of this um you know of, of, of the kind of trying to fight back in inverted commas because that is essentially what ended up happening uh, uh you know that it was a very actually I, I thought there was a pertinent sort of uh uh, uh um, there, there, there was an interview with uh, with, with a uh, you know with one of the Muslim leaders over mm -hmm. there, 
and uh, you know he rightfully i actually you know agreed with everything that he, you know he said in in the old days you know that we would be fight, fighting the nazis and things and you know now we've got to a stage where we're fighting each other and i thought that was a very sad indictment of what's happened and it's so true you know there was a point as you've uh, uh, put uh, you know in in the old days um, and I know this, you know, because I'm also, you know, like uh, the son of someone from East Africa, you know, like uh, East African uh, uh, heritage, that they at least they had this sort of, um, there was this grouping, you know, like just because they were from the subcontinent, they, they, they were together, they, there was an understanding, they had a, you know, they had a sort of mutual um, uh, affection for one another, you know, that they, they would make, you know, like they, they, they worked together, they played together, they, they sort of understood together. And that has really been removed, which is a really sad indictment of the current situation. Um, and uh, yes, I think there has been a failure. I think there's just been a failure that no one, no one saw it coming, no one tried to act upon it, because we have known exactly what's been happening in India for a while, even in Pakistan, for example. Um, uh, you know, the, uh, um, uh, they seem to have a problem with minorities in, in those countries, and it's become a very tit-for-tat thing, but definitely the rise of it in India has been very concerning, um, and, and, and it seems to be something that is being imported around the world. It's not just here either. I know that they have similar issues in South Africa, for example, where they, you'd never sort of see those problems. Um, you're seeing them across the sort of globe. Um, so, so this move does need to be dealt with in some way or another, and um, yeah, it, it, I have to say it's less has been said about community cohesion, more has been sort of been pointing out the differences amongst us, sure. which, is, which is a real shame. Yeah. Well, what about uh, the promised Messiah, Rasulam, as a bit In his time, he was confronted a lot with with this Hindu-Muslim conflict and uh, much abuse to the Holy Prophet by. Mm. Uh, uh, by the Arya Samajis in particular. Yes. How did the Promised Messiah deal with that? Well, um, he tried to diffuse any tensions. Mm. He wanted always, and he, he wrote uh, about uh, uh, forging uh, community cohesion mm -hmm. and understanding. And uh, he even said uh, that he, if it helped matters, then he would... Uh, uh, he would uh, s stop eating uh, or call his followers to stop eating beef right? Uh, so as not to uh, um, infringe upon yes. the sensibilities and sensitivities so of taking the Hindus. So taking the initiative yes. uh, of uh, changing themselves yes. rather than us demanding them to change. Yes, right. yes. Okay. So, uh, and I think that was uh, for the Hindus not besmirching the character of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. That was uh, what he was saying. But what you, uh, the basic point that you have made, mm. is that reaching out uh, and trying to to uh, conduct yourself or behave yourself behave uh, in such a way as to get uh, the other party to in, uh, to uh, <laughs> to to be endeared to you. Yes, I mean that's yeah. that, winning that's, over their yeah. hearts, basically. Yes, yeah. The the message being that uh, don't let your ego rule yeah. you, basically, no, right? No. Uh, and you can change. Yeah. Um, so, um, and he also said that I mean he was not against any um, any individual. It was just against wrong wrong beliefs mm. that he was striving to to expunge. So he was not against any Hindu. He was not against any Christian. Right. But it was the wrong. Uh, uh, but it was the wrongful beliefs that uh, his he was motivated to uh, to to counter. 
So uh, uh, his uh, uh, writings are very much conciliatory mm -hmm. uh, in that respect. And he wrote a special book, did he not, Seth? Uh, on Muhammad's Law. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's, uh, yeah, articulated incredibly well. Yeah, in in, in a message of peace. Um, yeah. Um, a book that he wrote. That and um, yeah, I, I I wouldn't even try and <laughs> uh, summarize it because actually, I mean, the 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 book itself. I mean, I, I would definitely re highly recommend most people to pick it up and uh, read it because it it it's, it it really does discuss actually the the issue between um, uh, Hindu and Muslim. Um, to, to such Divisions, a degree, and yeah. yeah, and and I actually, you know, and that does articulate the way one needs to sort of move forward in in, in this aspect uh, the best way possible. Now we're having uh, a little bit of an issue with uh, some of our uh, contacts. Um, uh, let me just check, um, and. Uh, so we we were going to go on to speaking to Arun, who is from Leicester, uh, but we we can't uh, get hold of him at the moment. Um, on the subject of unity and peace in particular, because ultimately uh, this is what this is all about. Uh, Islam's message, and and I believe you mentioned mm. that uh, in your uh, narrative about the Holy Prophet's mm. final sermon. That he was given the revelation that uh, on this day I have, I have completed your faith and given Islam as your religion. Now, this, the word Islam is not the, the physical entity that we belong to. It is your, your life in which you live in. Mm. Uh, and that is the message of Islam, that it is to reach out to everyone and to create peace and unity. Mm. Uh, and that comes through, one, through worship of God, and two, in how we interact with the rest of the community. That is the message of Islam. Mm. Uh, how did the Holy Prophet uh, exemplify that in his life? Well, you see, um, we actually covered that uh, today. I mean, uh, for instance, when we talked about the letter that he sent to uh, the governor of uh, Egypt, he, he was very much uh, talking about, let us agree on those matters that are common to us. Yeah. So uh, the message essentially is that to try and build on those things that are common between you and the other communities mm, mm. and forge a relationship and build a relationship through common um, through that common platform Absolutely. And, and challenge your own yeah. div uh, uh, divisions yes. and bring something which is closer to yes, each other yes. yeah. rather than exploit yeah. the divisions that you Indeed. that you may have and which are which are usually smaller than the, the uh, what, what is what is common well. yeah. as the quran states in surah mm. Nisa, that uh, come to say what you believe come to a word that is equal to us yeah. absolutely yeah. Yeah. Come to what is united yeah. Yeah. Uh, Seth, thank you very much for joining us and sorry for uh, uh, delaying it a little bit as well. So, but thank you for enlightening us with your uh, information on, on this situation. Right, Willie, we're going to come to our next segment a little bit earlier, uh -huh. uh, that of the sports review. Oh, okay. Mm. Weekend World Sports Review. Right, Willie, the England cricket team are currently touring Pakistan to play seven T20 matches. Uh, international match matches. It's a preparatory uh, series before the two 2022 ICC Men's T20 World Cup. The English team will return to Pakistan in December to play three test matches as well. 
the test matches will form part of the 2021-23 ICC World Test Championships. Joining us this morning, uh, live from Pakistan, is Tariq Mir. Tariq resided in England for several years before returning to his beloved Pakistan. His passion for cricket prompted him to form a cricket team in England, which he managed and captained as well. He often visits England often coinciding his trips with his family, he says, but uh, events, uh, but also it coincides with Pakistan's tours to England as well. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure cricket plays a key part to that. Good morning. Assalamu alaikum, Tariq. Good afternoon. Oh, yes, of course. It's afternoon. We are still in the morning here. Uh, but, but uh, Tariq, always good to have you. Uh, we had you last time and you gave us some lovely insight into the uh, the cricket of Pakistan. Uh, and, and it's always a joy to watching Pakistan. But this tour is following on from a cancelled tour on a false security report initiated from India at, at the time. How does it feel to have England and other nations touring Pakistan again, you as a Pakistan, uh, as a cricket-loving uh, Pakistani? Well, uh, was, uh, thank you for your uh, effort to contact me. It's nice that you expressed these, your views, which I humbly accept. Uh, what happened was... Uh, a lot of polit- political uh, positions were, were taken off without taking into account the stability uh, last year. Mm. And uh, we suffered. Uh, we suffered from uh, New Zealand starting the match half an hour before the match, and they decided that it was a threat, yeah. which turned out to be from our hostile enemy. Yes. There was nothing to it. And England. Very strangely, very strangely, they decided that uh, they will not come, not because of the uh, threat of terrorism. No. It was to do with the saying that the English players are too tired to travel. Yes, I remember that, yes. <laughs> much critic- they, said, they faced much criticism in England from people like David Gower and Michael Atherton and other senior officials. Yeah, yes, yes, that, yeah that was brilliant because hmm. uh, it turned out to be that uh, someone in a high position in England lost the job. Yes, because the Prime, Minister that, uh, the, uh, the Prime Minister at that time, Mr. Boris Johnson, he also took uh, the ECB at task and uh, subsequently uh, we we found out that uh, the, the cricket chief had resigned and mm. a temporary uh, I mean so, I'll be sorry I was going to say I've been watching the games uh, on the TV and uh, it appears that the English team have been very welcome you see ma- uh, banners from Pakistani supporters welcome England England you are brilliant or great or whatever it is they're getting a warm reception are they not Yes, it, actually they are. You see, if you just uh, slightly going off Pakistan, uh, when Australia went to Sri Lanka recently, right? Mm. And uh, there was a big crisis, financial crisis there. And uh, the entire crowd had put on their mobiles in the evening and uh, thank Australia wow. for bringing light light to that brilliant so going back to pakistan yeah they put on the lights and hmm. when australia came here in april march april this year uh, they were also welcomed as good as if not better than england right? hmm. uh, this this is just to show that uh, 
Pakistan is a cricket uh, loving country and uh, we we appreciate all uh, what have they done uh, it was uh, more than political than anything else and it was also to do with our neighboring country not playing with us at all any bilateral series yes only icc matches so that that brought in uh, some uh, respite that we saw australians and they were very happy and in fact um, uh, david uh, i think robert key who was the commentator in, uh, in 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 doing it for pakistan television yes he he was so amazed that he he had, he had this was his first trip ever to pakistan and he said i don't know why we didn't come last 20 years or whatever yeah. right and soon he took up a high position there so that helped all these things up and of course my michael holding and david gaur and all the uh, nasir hussain they were all very very supportive and they were annoyed at what england did hmm. so we came england yes uh, we, we, there was some skepticism about the english uh, Uh, team such as doctors are not here but uh, i don't think that it undermined anything although we felt that the crowds will be not as great as they turned out to be because of the devastation of floods here and people's uh, yeah financial crisis and but come with the first match i too was shocked against all uh, negative reports coming up that there's no tickets people are buying but mm. now i was told that all the four matches have been sold out right? yeah, on yeah. today the commentators yeah. have been reporting that as well that the crowds are immense and uh, considering uh, what has happened in pakistan with the floods uh, yeah. a lot of money being raised through these games for those floods as well which is yes, great to, great yes, to see yes. now yeah, england contributed their their share separately from we want to done it exactly i think 51 million or something or planning to yeah. up to 151 million possibly as well yeah. uh, coming yeah. on to the yeah. cricket tarik uh, the cricket has started some exciting games <laughs> how do you assess the teams on the three matches played so far now england are leading to one uh, england just seem a little bit stronger than pakistan maybe because of a few bowlers missing or something like that from pakistan what's your assessment of the games and and wh- where they lie at the moment You see, we are very famously known hmm. to be the most uh, persistently inconsistent, consistent, consistently, <laughs> consistently inconsistent. <laughs> Wonderfully put. <laughs> and persistently, uh, actually, this is, this is the game of cricket. Pakistan can one day be uh, the champions of the world, and uh, next day they could be. you know in a bad shape mm-hmm. uh we we first match was lost because of moin ali's uh, blaster and uh, sec- second second uh, match mm. uh, moin took the game away almost by scoring 203 runs yeah and but you know when uh, it was proven now that there are four world records of the highest opening batsman ever scored to score so many runs we talk about uh, babar azam and mohammad rizwan here yeah yeah, yeah. so when when they click uh, uh, unfortunately mm. they click a lot unfortunately i'm saying because the others don't get the chance yeah. and if they given the chance they don't perform so it, it the team is entirely dependent on on these two guys mm. and there's a lot of talk that they should come down and the others should come up but i don't think the babar is very rigid in that sense that we have succeeded like in uh, against uh, in the world cup last year in dubai 
we beat India by 10 wickets, right? Yes. 152 runs. So uh, our team is like this. You know, you have to accept the fact. The English and the West Indian commentators often, com- even the Australians, often comment which Pakistan will turn up. If it's the one that is, <laughs> which is brilliant, or the one that is going to let us down. Uh, I remember the World Cup final against uh, Australia uh, in England. Yeah, Do you remember? I was at. I was. I was at. Yeah, that I know. Indeed, you were. <laughs> um, now, Babar Azam and Mohammad Rizwan seem to be. Sorry, you're going to say something. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was now going to talk about the English team, right? Please. Uh, there was some criticism here. Uh, that they haven't sent the A team, and Mr. Butler has come here and is mm. having a nice time eating food. Which, uh, <laughs> they love Pakistani food, right? But it's in here. No, it this, this is the most one of the most strangest part of the uh, uh, tour mm. that he doesn't want to play the four matches. He'll think about the other three matches. Oh, right? really? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he hasn't played the matches. <laughs> Yeah. That would add, that would add added flavor yeah. if uh, we beat well. But at the at the end of the day, England have got an opportunity to bring in their youngsters, mm-hmm. and they have been performing brilliantly, except for the one bowling uh, act on the second match with Pakistan law uh, won. Yeah. Others they have been they have uh, they made you see they made changes after losing the second match to Pakistan. Correct. Right? Yes. And yeah, and both those players, Topley and um, what was his name, uh, Tollins? They 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 perform so well that uh, it it must be given hard to the English uh, uh, board that uh, they have a lot of uh, youngsters coming up. Well, the depth of so Pakistan, I was going to say the depth of English cricket is very good, and they can produce a second team which is almost as good as the first team. Yeah, that's true. Because if you look at the ratings, which mm. uh, one can take. ICC into consideration. England is number two at the moment. Right, right? correct. So it's yeah, they, they they took a gamble that they may lose that ranking to Pakistan who's third, mm. India's first. But uh, they 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 didn't take uh, that into negativity, and we positively they brought in players. Having lost the second match, they made changes, and those changes were uh, fantastic for them, right? Yeah, yeah And absolutely. of course, again, Pakistan capitulated and uh, didn't do well. Uh, Tariq, uh, joining us is our sports analyst for the Weekend World Show, Shahid Khan. He's an ex-England international hockey player who may wish to ask you a few questions as well. Shahid, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum as I hope you've been listening to some of what Tariq's been saying. Uh, they've been very impressed. Uh, one, with uh, the English uh, team. Uh, also, they're very happy that the English team are in Pakistan. Uh, a little bit disappointed about the performances. Pakistan could be do better, but they are doing quite well. Uh, what do you think of what Tariq has been saying? Well, I totally agree with your comments as well as Tariq's. I think he mentioned the fact that the England management will be happier, the two at the moment, with the way things have gone. I mean, let's not forget T20 is a gamble. One day you're beating England by 20, by 10 wickets mm. on 200 uh, to chase, unbelievably. And people have put, uh, you know, other things into perspective. Maybe this might not have been the case. But let's not forget that this is T20. It can go either way on the day. And Pakistan can blow teams out of sight I mean, on particular days. They have done it recently against India and so forth. So, on the whole, I did mention before this seven-match series, 
I think it's going to be more of a benefit to Pakistan, when, uh, sorry, to England, because of the fact that they have a system of producing a team rather than just going for victory in each match. I mean, this is what the problem has been in Pakistan for a long time. Mm. I must say that they have improved in terms of their squad now. But let's not forget that England have a settled side, or not settled side, but at least the depth of their uh, team is so, so... I mean, let's not forget, even Butler wasn't even playing in these games. This is what Fajr was saying, that's right. He's Indeed, enjoying the food, apparently. Agree. <laughs> Sorry? He's enjoying the food, apparently. Oh, is he? Right. <laughs> but one thing I must say, I'm a bit disappointed in the sense that, I mean, I'm, it's all very well for Pakistan to tour, uh, or England to tour Pakistan at this time. Uh, in terms of, I mean... The, things off the field in terms of the flooding and so forth. Uh, England still are going there, and I'm surprised that they have not made more of the fact that the team is, the country is in turmoil. And, you know, not a lot has been said. All has been said, oh, this will be do heartening to the population in terms of the cricket. But one third of the country has been affected by these floods, and mm. let's not forget about that. It appears for me as an outsider, I mean, Tariq is on, on, on the site, to me that the country is just blowing things out of all proportion with regard to flooding. From the cricket, and that point of view I'm talking about, to stop a whole city just for cricket, I don't think is right at this moment in time. I think your views on that, uh, Shai is a bit critical of the government uh, in the, uh, giving so much... Uh, yeah, you see, I, I tend to agree with him, not fully, but uh, you know, the, the security arrangements have been so strong that nothing happens again, right? So government is at uh, mercy of the public, uh, mercy of the administration, because uh, we know for 17 years England didn't come, Australia didn't come for like 21 years. So all these uh, things, they will get better over a period of time, as things stand now. With frequent players, with team coming here, uh, all the administrative problems are there. You know what, they, they complain here when there's a match, the whole few at least eight, 10 to 15 kilometers, mm. which you call their miles, that they 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 block the roads yeah. and they, mm-hmm. they do things. But still, I, I was watching one of the spectators saying the other day that I had to walk uh, three kilometers up to the match. But <laughs> I was so I, I was so I was so excited that it didn't matter. You mm. know? Yeah, and it's one yeah. of those Pakistan is one of those countries where. If your team is losing, unlike our neighboring, I don't want to name them, they just walk out, right? So we, we here don't do that. Right? Mm-hmm. We have that uh, uh, positivity that if someone is, if our team is losing, we still stay at the ground to see the end of the match. Yeah, but is that Tariq because for the fact that they've been starved of cricket, uh, live international cricket, is that the reason that they're staying in the grounds for the fact that, you know, they are trying to put a good face on it, the fact that their neighbours can rely on all this uh, other franchises and so forth, which is getting absolutely phenomenal coverage worldwide and things that that is all in all in cricket. But I, I agree with you, the fact that the population does look to the Pakistan cricket team for the morale of the of the country rather than just the cricket. I I'll one, one point here, that you must remember that uh, our sports has degenerated, right? Absolutely. Right. Yeah, we have, gen- you know, we used to have a uh, uh, World Cup of Hockey, we won the Olympics, right. we won yeah. so many goals over the period of time of hockey. And then we had two great sports players who, who brought a lot of laurels for the country. 
but things uh, i don't know why we, we, there has been a discussion that uh, why cricket only is uh, thriving right because you still was ranked in the top uh, the top ranked teams in all formats right so That's why true. the other sports so this, i think because of cricket the enthusiasm and other aspects of it covers up the other sports which should not be the case yeah. right yeah. and yeah. Yeah. no money yeah no money spent yeah. hockey you know you yeah. played hockey so that, that, that's what that's what I was going to raise actually was that uh, at the expense of cricket um yeah. Shahid makes a criticism about uh, what the Pakistan government gave them too much support but at the expense of cricket other sports have suffered where Pakistan were world leaders you know you you mentioned hockey you mentioned squash uh in Olympics wrestling was not something I remember Pakistan always used to yeah, do yeah yes, yes, right, right and boxing as, as well and, and all of these sports are suffering uh it's good to see that women uh cricket in Pakistan is good but again it's cricket again isn't it not the other sports now India yeah, is, yeah. is investing in uh, the super leagues in hockey and, oh yeah and football India, and, yeah yeah uh but but pakistan hasn't got the money to do that uh how can they change that shahid any views on your part and then we'll take uh, well, tarik's views yeah i think in terms of hockey what i've heard from them there is going to be a new league i think it's been going on for a while i know but i think they have given a date as to when that will be starting similar to the psl in hockey there is some money coming into it and there are some academies which are un- unfortunately i say been run by individuals who are ex players uh who are running those so uh, they're being reliant reliant on those and in the past in the near uh recently the teams that have pakistan come out of pakistan have been reliant on them and really trying to just keep them above the water in fact uh, my one of my local teams I just got a text just before I spoke to you in fact that three or four even not half the pakistan team is going to be playing in england against these in the league yeah. because of the fact that they they're not able to get any uh Uh, employment locally in Pakistan, and they have to fend for themselves somehow. And unfortunately, hockey players are. Whereas cricket, like you mentioned, women's cricket as well, the coverage and so forth, also on television, all the rest of it, and then obviously filters down to the sponsorship and the rest of it. And as a result of that, I mean, the other day also seeing that Pakistan is going to start junior cricket. Uh, so I, let me uh, before I I forget that that's why I indulge. Sure. I sorry yeah. to stop you do that. uh cricket uh, actually the money comes from icc right correct so yeah it's all to do with icc it's 100% icc's efforts to bring in money to not only pakistan and most of the countries right so in what we failed in compared to our neighboring country is the corporate uh, uh, sponsorship right it is there right. is hardly any and if there is you know no one's interested so people one are only interested to yeah one yeah. thing i must mention in terms of sponsorship and leadership in hockey what has happened recently the fih uh, chief and what a chief ceo or whatever they called him was an indian gentleman by the name of uh, i remember company's name i don't remember his name but he has actually resigned suddenly and the world hockey federation is now looking or has a thing in in gym Uh, chief for hockey now this person was so much against hockey and i um, i can speak from his record if you look at it he has been responsible for not allowing pakistan junior team to come to a world cup in india so that was uh, for me was a real down for pakistan hockey in terms of 
I mention this because of the fact yeah, that there might right. be any leadership there, and this might help with Pakistan in the future. I hope. Uh, just before uh, we just before we let Tariq go, uh, Tariq, I just uh, want to mention that uh, Shahid is a, a journalist, a correspondent on hockey, and uh, he re- recently uh, mentioned about the death of a great Pakistani hockey player. Shahid, can you give yes, us? Yes, I was going to mention that. All oh, right, okay. I was going to mention well, that. Well, go ahead. You start off then. No, actually, you see, uh, yeah, I know uh, Manzoor Junior. Um, he was one of the finest uh, players we have produced in the 70s and 80s, right? Unfortunately, what happened to him he, when he passed away suddenly because of some sudden illness, and he was in a private hospital, right? And when the family wanted to take the body away, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they didn't allow him to, until they paid him. Oh. They paid for it. Yeah. These That's things fine. also, uh, had it been cricket, uh, they are already... In cricket, we have pensions, we have a lot of other uh, funding for the whole players. Yeah. This really dampened a lot of people. And uh, Shahid would know more about cricket uh, hockey than I do, sitting there. But uh, I, 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 myself, I'm not interested in hockey at all. Yeah. So it could be the passion for cricket, whatever. There, the passion has gone down. People, you know, see, now any bowler, like this Harris Rauf, right? He, he he didn't come from the grind. He was not a 16-year-old, 19-year-old player. Suddenly, he, he tried to play here, and uh, he was not uh, considered at all. Then off he went to Australia. Some Australian selected him to come play the bash league there. And from there onwards, he's one of the finest forms of the batsman we, uh, player we have. So it's always cricket. Yeah, always yeah, cricket yeah. with him. I, I'm not saying that we don't have talent in hockey. No, no, we have, but it's not, uh, yeah. It's not exploited. It's not exploited. Shahid, just tell us a little bit about uh, Manzoor Jr. Uh, what sort of things well, did he achieve for Pakistan? I think Patarik has mentioned the fact that uh, Manzoor Jr., uh, he, uh, he was one of the World Cup winners, I mean, a number of times in the uh, Olympics in Los Angeles also. Uh, and he was also captain of the junior team as well at one time. And one of the finest players going, I mean, he leave aside his many laurels at the time Pakistan were expected to win. Uh, but one thing about Manzoo Jr., he recently was at the time of the Commonwealth Games last month, he was here in Birmingham, and uh, this was all very sudden, his death. And for, I didn't realize what Tariq just mentioned about his treatment perhaps mm-hmm. in the hall. Uh, but as a player, but as, uh, as uh, I mean, Tariq said that he mentioned all the rest of it. Uh, in terms of PIE at that time, uh, Manzoo Jr. was well looked after in the sense that uh, he spent some time in different countries as country manager, some of the PI offices and so forth. So he was one of those people who actually was uh, well off in that sense. Uh, whereas that's not the case nowadays. And But with regard, I think he went on then politically, I think he, he was, as a chief selector, he was uh, a controversial figure. And uh, I think he... Uh, he uh, at times, they did mention that obviously that's not un, not unusual for Pakistan selectors not to be there at the select at the trial, for instance. Mm. So these kind of things were there against him, and that I think had put a back mark on him. Uh, but that's the case after he stopped playing, and obviously had a long and very very successful career. Shahid, coming, Shahid, your point is very nice. Good, it's very nice. Uh, explained nicely. Explained. When players go off the field, they're not supposed to be great. Uh, Coaches, right? And sports never has produced uh, great administrators, right? Yeah. Pakistan has not, not one. Yeah. 
and in all England, in all West Indies, there was Viv Richards. They were they, like Gary Sober was never a good coach, right? <laughs> so these are the things that happened. So Manzoor was no exception. No, Tariq, yeah, we're yeah. we're coming to the end of our show. So thank you very much for joining okay. us. Thank and you, Adam, your... Thank you, Tariq. No, no, we hope we'll nice to speak to you again. Uh, Shai, just one last thing on British uh, sports. Uh, England relegated to, from the Nations League, losing 1-0 to Italy. Uh, is, uh, the limelight has gone from England's football, is it? Oh, well, it's coming at a very long time. I and mean, the fact that they're going, they've been relegated from League A in terms of Nations League. I mean, Nations League, Nations League was, I think, put together for the fact that the uh, friendlies didn't have much meaning. Mm. But nevertheless, I think to come at this stage, I mean, got two points out of five games in this league against Italy, Hungary and uh, Germany. Uh, so I think with the World Cup coming up, I think the the, 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 the alarming signs for the manager and yeah, is not as popular as he was winning the or losing in the final of the European nation on the European Cup. Indeed. So I hope that the team picks up, but yep. by the looks of it, it is not on a very healthy run at the no, moment. No. Struggling to score goals, it appears. Uh, but it seems to be exactly, not yeah. just so that the, the fans, I think, are going to turn against Saudi at the moment. As well. Yeah, it only happens with crowds. Anyway, we're coming to the end of the show. Thank you very much for joining us, Shahid. Thank you to Tariq. Thank you to. Uh, thank you. No, no, thank you very much. Uh, thank you to all okay. the guests who appeared on the show today. Uh, Willie, thank you very okay. much for your insights. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah to all our listeners and to our guests. Uh, we shall join you back in two weeks' time, inshallah ta'ala. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullah wabarakatuh.